Prime Minister, ma'am. As of an hour ago, the loss of life in Aberfan stands at 116. Now, it appears that over 80 are still missing. 36 of the survivors have been hospitalised. I see. Are any more victims expected to be found? Uh, not alive, ma'am. To make matters worse, it has been reported that the north shoulder of Tip 7 has moved and the village is ready for immediate evacuation. Mechanical diggers are out of action, bogged down in the soggy mud. The military have been brought in to help. Now, given all this, I was hoping I might persuade you to go. One of the most unfortunate things about being sovereign I have discovered is that you paralyze virtually any situation you walk into. The very last thing emergency and rescue services need when they're working against the clock is a queen turning up. I'm not sure I agree. Children have died. The community is devastated. What precisely would you have me do? Well, comfort people. Put on a show. The Crown doesn't do that. I didn't say put on a show. I said comfort people. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and on this show, we'll follow the third season of the Netflix original series, The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved, and diving deep into the stories. Today, we're talking about episode three, titled Abavan, on the 21st of October, 1966, a devastating tragedy befell the Welsh mining village Abavan, claiming the lives of 116 children and 28 adults. As the children and their teachers began their day in the classroom, an avalanche of pit waste slid down the mountainside from the nearby coal tip, engulfing Pantglass Junior School within a matter of minutes. If you haven't watched the episode yet, as you'd expect with such a tragic subject matter, it's a very emotional experience but a story that the team behind The Crown felt strongly that they wanted to tell. Coming up later, we'll hear from Head of Research, Annie Salzberger, who'll provide a detailed description of the tragedy and the events that followed. Nothing like this had really ever happened before. And I don't think anything like this has happened since. We have never researched anything like this. We'll also hear from lead director and executive producer Ben Caron on the production and personal challenges involved in filming the episode. That was by far the hardest two weeks of my filming career. It was about making sure that we raised an awareness to this tragedy, not just to people under the age of 40 that definitely wouldn't know about it, and, and also to an international audience that, that wouldn't know about it either. And, and of course, you just want to make sure you, you get it right. But first, I spoke with BAFTA award-winning actor Jason Watkins about taking on the role of former Prime Minister Harold Wilson. Jason Watkins, hello sir, how are you? Very good, hello. <laughs> smile. We spoke to Peter and he was very adamant. He was like, he knew he wanted you and he had you in mind for this role. Well, gosh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I. Um, it's such an exciting series, having been a fan of it um, and then to be considered 
I've got a friend who's an architect, yeah. and when, when they when they pitch for jobs, yeah. they have to do months of work, and then they turn up, and then they might not get it, and that's part of that. And I said, well, you know, same I'm, as me, mate. Well, I'm so determined <laughs> to get this part yeah. that that really was. I did a lot of research. I got my impersonation together. I did all those things and arrived with very prepared. Yeah. And and I think I'd obviously worked with Peter before, and um, you know when he considered me to be part of it there's a great sort of vote of confidence in that so uh, it was an incredibly exciting prospect that's really interesting you'd done a load of research even before yeah. you got the part in terms yeah. of finding your harold wilson they're nerve-wracking processes yeah. screen tests and, and and so i thought well i need to be fueled by the person that i'm playing and really try and know him and just well i don't get it forget it you know <laughs> yeah which has happened of course in other projects where it doesn't quite work out where do you start then when you're researching? Where did you where did you begin for Harold? Well, the, the, there's the obvious impersonatory things, the accent, you know, where he's, he's a very unusual accent in that it's um, uh, it's almost um, it's almost like posh, you know, in many ways. So there are certain key sounds that you hold on to. Where he, you look, where he's from, he's you know originally from Huddersfield. Then he moved to the Wirral, so there's the, he retained sounds from those. Yeah. And then he went to Oxford, and so his accent was flattened out. And of course, at the time, everybody spoke a bit, a bit like the Queen's English, so everything was. So he's got an element of that. So it's a strange mix in terms of the his accent. But then you try and work out how his brain works. Really, I always try and what's the rhythm of his brain? How do the thoughts come into his head? Yeah. Very different to all characters are very different, and you're trying to sort of project from the outside in what's coming <laughs> out to you. And um, so he was just a fascinating man. Mm. His the history of him and his upbringing, and and you know, <laughs> it's be very easy to talk about contemporary politics now, wouldn't it? You could crack on. <laughs> oh, what are the similarities between Harold Wilson and you know uh, what is going on now in the birth of Europe? You know, yeah. Edward Heath, the Tory at the time. You know, he was he was a champion of Europe. Yeah. I mean, this, is, this is strange. There are cyclical elements to it, but for me, it was trying to work out. You know, I think politicians go into politics to make the world a better place. It, whatever their view of a better place is. <laughs> yeah. I think Howard Wilson was a man of principle. Yeah. He's had a religious upbringing as well and uh, was a scout. He liked rules um, and wanted to make the world a better place. I mean, his father was made redundant. He was uh, worked in dyeing, a dyeing factory and then in munitions. And when he was made redundant, I think that really stuck with Howard Wilson. That was something that really... And he didn't want that to happen. Yeah. And he saw the damage that it did to his father and his world and to other people. So I think that, that certainly stayed, stayed with him. So, you know, he was... He did set out to become, to make the world a better place. So, I mean, I was trying to think, where does that sit? Yeah. And, and, and at the same time, he was a royalist, so which I think is surprising to many people. They think, oh, he's just like this rather doer, you know, boring socialist. But he wasn't. He was uh, a modernist. Uh, and although he was grey and rotund, he was quite dynamic, almost, I would like to say, sexy, I think. <laughs> I haven't said that. People have said that about, about Wilson and about my portrayal. Well, he was successful in certain areas of life. So we, well, I mean, he was. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's another story. Another story. Um, <laughs> but what is, was there much there for you to dive into with regards to his relationship with the Queen? 
Was there much documented about that? Was there much to sort of find on that? Yes, I mean, oh, I know that they got on. He liked to talk. They liked to gossip a bit. I think people would be surprised to think, know that he was a royalist. And what he disliked intensely was the... He didn't distrust privilege. He hated, despised the misuse of it. Yeah. And I think that was the thing, one of the things that really drove him. And the sense of duty that the Queen has as a remit, he connected with and understood. And... I think they had a, a relationship that was about service, which which is which is mentioned throughout the series and hinted at in scenes between them. Um, specifically, I mean, that, those were the key things for me. Mm. Can you remember the first scene you filmed? Uh, <laughs> well, I remember the first key scene with with, with Olivia, with Olivia yeah. yeah, in 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 this place up in Potter's Bar, yeah. I mean. <laughs> You know, of course, I've done shows before where you, you know, you were a fan and then you, you end up in it. Done quite a lot of that. Uh, but this was on a slightly bigger scale. <laughs> were you absolutely fanboying out then? You were kind of like... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was. I, I, I was also terrified. And, uh, you know, I got my gear on, got my wig on, you know, it took about <clears throat> an, an hour, over an hour and a half to get the wig on and get into character and find the physicality and, uh, yeah, and I I suppose, as I said earlier on about being an architect, you know, sort of pitching, I thought, oh, this is where it's going to count. All that stuff <laughs> that I've done in my bedroom no is actually, no one's seen any of that. They need to, this is where we're going to see it. But you have to, you know, you have to play the scene, make sure you, and you can only use as much of the information that, you know, we've talked about now, a little yeah. bit about the research. You really, it's all apposite to what you're doing in that room with that other person. And so, you know, you kind of forget about that in a way and make sure you play the scene and the changes in the scenes and the, um, and Ben, Ben Karen, the director is brilliant. He, he has this, um, the night before, um, he'll send you some notes that come through on email and just yeah. reminding you of and new things as well about you know about the dynamics of their first meeting and that he was uh you know he was slightly nervous a little overawed slightly so that was easy to play and uh <laughs> but also you know determined and wanting to bond and you know so 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 all these little ingredients that were thrown in just before doing it so you you know it kept it fresh and he did that every time every day before uh, a particular scene and I know Olivia, I worked with her before, um, but she was obviously brilliant, just brilliant on the set. She's just so incredibly brave and positive and brilliant. Yeah. And that helps. And, and naughty sometimes. <laughs> and naughty, yeah. I mean, I'm sure <laughs> other people will tell you. Oh, yeah. Um, I tend to get a bit sort of serious and, um, you know, um, try and stay in my little bubble. Um, I've worked with other actors. I mean, Stellan Skarsgård, who I work with, he just sort of paces around, keeps himself, <laughs> he's like a caged animal, keeps his brain going. Yeah. And I'm a bit like that in a sort of more sedentary way. Um, but it's nice to have, I think that's why Olivia... One of her reasons for her success is that she's very good at keeping her spirit, and you see her spirit on the screen. Yeah, and across all her work. Yeah, you know she's got this incredible um, intelligence and a lightness of spirit, yeah. which, which carries has carried her such a long way. Um, let's move on to episode three, um, Abavan, which obviously a real historical event, but with it comes an element of. I guess, creative licence to tell it in the Crown's way, but being true and very respectful of the victims, the families, the community. Mm. Um, 
but Wilson was very central to to that storyline and mm. I just wanted to talk a little bit about about that and approaching that and how you how you prepared for that really in that specific episode well um I don't know how much we can talk about this, but I mean, uh, uh, people do know that, you know, my life story is that we have lost a child, me and my wife. And I think um, so. And I always knew that I, that that there was going to be an episode like this and I was going to have to try and deal with it and, and in a way make sure that I was playing Wilson and not me, yeah. you know, because it was going to be a hugely emotional um, journey. So kind of having seen it now it's like a gift actually because it's so brilliantly done and i think to all bereaved parents uh, it is an extraordinary thing a, a um such a sensitive portrayal and it valuing so valuing this the loss of all those lives the mm. 116 children but of course you know the coal board it's interesting because when wilson comes from Skelmersdale, he finds out about it and it's a sort of echo of, you know, George Bush being told in the primary school about 9-11, but he's completely on it. He gets the, you know, he asks for the, the plane and goes down there and it's on that, which is in the, in the episode, it's on that, that he knows the amount of slurry that has come down the hill and that was his first job in wartime he was um uh, he was taken in by the civil service and used as a civil servant and he was, worked in the ministry of power so he knew about quantities and he was an economist um a brilliant economist i mean that's worth saying i know it's a tangent slightly but you know he got the highest marks possible at his, at his uh, college in oxford and he was always the sharpest knife in the drawer in a, in a room when it came to economics which yeah. i think is a surprising but so on that plane, you know, he, he realised the amount of damage that was caused. Yeah. So he, he was, uh, he knew what he was going into to see. How much coal was in this tip? Too much. 300,000 cubic yards. Plus, guidelines suggest that tips should be no higher than 20 feet tall. Now, this one was over five times that. Who from the coal board is there? Local supervisor, Eric Ellis. We're going to need someone higher up than that. What about Lord Robin, head of the coal board? He was notified, but he's being invested as Chancellor of Surrey University today and saw no reason to postpone the investiture. What? Make sure he's there by tomorrow morning, will you? Yes, sir. Now we have to be careful. This could turn nasty very quickly. Come on, Harold. This is an accident caused by unprecedented rainfall. Isn't political. Everything is political, Andrew. That the scene where he he allows himself a moment to privately reflect and react to what he's witnessed, you know, after mm. he's been there and stuff is, mm. I mean, I, I yeah, it kind of I almost stopped me breathing, kind mm. of thing. It's so it's so poignant, and I think that that's what's wonderful about the the you know the, Peter and the the team deciding to use this as a as a subject for an episode for it this, is, which is, is a brave yeah. thing to do, but I think a necessary thing to do because it's... I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, My mum and dad yeah. did. I've spoken to them and they yeah. talk, talked about it to, you know, just kind of remind people about Well, this. I hope that that... And that will happen. I know it will because it's such a moving episode. Um, and one's hope is that the people of Wales, the whole of Wales and particularly of Aberfan, hope they feel 
comforted by a whole nation and you know yeah. that the whole world is in sympathy with them and what they suffered and what they endured yeah. uh, so that, that that is a you know I feel that episode is a little gift for me and my family you know yeah. so I, I hope that in a way that it's a gift to the town and to and also I was going on to say that you know that there were mistakes made and that Wilson was responsible ultimately for for the coal board now the coal board they they made mistakes. The there was this stream flowing underneath, which and there was is an extraordinary confluence of circumstances which could not possibly have been foreseen. But then some people did feel it was, and they should have been doing something about it. So it was very complicated politically, and that is explored as well. Yeah. And his uh, uh, the uncomfortableness that he feels about that. And one of the things I think that's um, you know is this this idea of of the queen, her kind of public and private person that she is and it's you know and that's explored through her reaction to this absolute tragedy and how she deals with it when she deals with it and the way that she should publicly deal with it and Wilson is very much at the center of that story in terms of helping her negotiate that as well in a way. Yes and I think if you look at the first series and you look at Churchill's paternal view on on her and you wouldn't imagine that Wilson would occupy a similar space but he does in in some degree and as an advisor he advises her that kicks in 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 this episode that he he advises on what she should do and I think she's probably stunned I think like most people and didn't know what to do what should one do Mm. how how do we how do I play this and how should I and also having experienced himself having been there and the weight of feeling and the emotion and the uh, necessity for some kind of uh, royal guidance and acknowledgement of what the, of their suffering. So he's, you know, he he makes one or two rather good decisions, I think, and he's very sensitive in the way he helps her. And then in the end of it, where there's this gloves off kind of honesty about how he has portrayed himself to mm. the media in a sense, you know, I prefer, you know, wild salmon to tin salmon, <laughs> cigars. And I'd done all that research. I gasped when he said cigar line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I don't like pipe smoking. <laughs> I far prefer cigars. And, you know, there's, you, you, there's this element of persona about mm. it and that you're saying that real emotion uh, is maybe not apposites to what had happened in Abervan, although she is a hugely emotional person, that um, a bit of reserve is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. So, yeah, he was able to uh, advise her on that. And, and, and it, it, he's a pragmatist, he's a realist. Uh, and he felt that, you know, that was good advice. This is one massive spoiler, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> We're hoping people have watched it. That's the right, whole okay, point. Good. Yeah, yeah uh, that's the whole point, yeah. <laughs> Joining us again is Annie Salzberger, head of the Crown Research Department. As you'll have heard in episode two, the Crown Research Department has a significant role to play in shaping the episodes. In this instance, the importance of being balanced, sensitive and historically insightful were particular challenges. You know, this show is a huge international success and there will be people around the world who don't know where Wales <laughs> is or what Wales is. And I think that that's another important thread throughout this entire mm. series, actually, Absolutely. is Wales's relationship with the Crown, with the rest of the United Kingdom. It's a really clever way of talking about that. Absolutely. So, bare basics, I suppose. <laughs> Wales is a country in its own right within Great Britain. 
as a landmass. Beautiful country. Mm. Uh, Along with Scotland and England, they make up Great Britain. And then Northern Ireland rounds out the United Kingdom. Wales, back in 1966, had about, I think, maybe two and a half million people versus England's 41. So it's relatively smaller. It's much smaller in population. And the Welsh had really relied on coal as a serious industry for them. Coal use was starting to to go on the decline by the 60s. So I think it had been about 90% of Britain's fuel source for, uh, I think, around the ni- in 1950. And then by 60, it's about 80. And by about 66, it's about, about 70%. And they've started to use diesel and trains and oil and natural gas to heat homes. So things are starting to diversify, which means that Wales is really feeling the brunt of the death of the coal industry, particularly for its employment of its men. And... Under Wilson, I mean, people would be very surprised to hear this, but under Wilson, there were far more coal um, pit closures than there were under Thatcher. And that was not due to strikes and and workers' pay, and Mm. it was just due to the decline of the industry. It was a huge, like you say, kind of became a a problem that grew and grew as well Mm. in terms of it going from it being a a, a Welsh issue, so to speak, to it being a... A national issue. Absolutely. Very quickly. I think it's worth saying that before we, we really dive into the Abervan event, that nothing like this had really ever happened before. And I don't think anything like this had happened, have, has happened since. We have never researched anything like this. That is so, uh, it fills one with sadness that you actually can't quite grapple with even, I mean, I've been, I have spent two years on this subject. Mm-hmm. I still can't get over it. So what happened was on the day, on the morning of October 21st, 1966, a tip, which is, it consists of the coal waste. So the coal's dug out, there's a colliery in Abervan, and the coal's dug out from the underground pit. And anything that is considered waste product of that coal is taken up and dumped on the top of a mountain, which you would think really inherently sounds a bit dangerous, doesn't it? Now, this tip was 111 feet high, when the maximum for any tip was supposed to be 20 feet high. What would also come out later is that it was built on a spring. Essentially, this village in in Wales, in South Wales, Abervan, which had, I believe at that time, 5,000 people, you know, most of whom worked in or knew someone related to someone who worked in that industry, had an active volcano just waiting to erupt there. And, and it's visible. I mean, you look up and you have green hills and then a very, very prominent black one. So on the morning of the 21st of October, it had been raining a few days before. You add that into the spring and you have lava. The tip just started to, with massive force, come rolling down. And it rolled over Panclass Junior School, pretty much instantly killing a large percentage of the children within it. It also took out some houses on the way. It killed teachers. In the end, there was 116 children dead and 28 adults dead. And it happened within, I think, 30 seconds. It came in just like a tsunami. And when you look at the pictures of the devastation to the school, the impact must have literally been, I don't think there's anything else you could you could uh, liken it to other than a tsunami. And... The, um, they, they managed to pull some children free, but most of the children, it happened so fast that most of the children either suffocated 
or died of injuries, but I think suffocation was primarily the the number one cause of death. And what you had after that was just this frantic digging operation because they couldn't bring in mechanical diggers in case the weight of those diggers crushed the children who were alive. So you just had to dig with your hands or whatever was light enough that you knew it wouldn't do any harm to what was underneath. Mm. You said earlier that within the the episode, there's these people who have had this, you know, indescribable loss. Mm. They want blame. They want someone. They want something to blame for it. And you said that the research that you've done, it was an unavoid. It was avoidable. Completely avoidable. Yeah. So in '63, they had written to the National Coal Board, which had been nationalized. So it's essentially like writing to the government, and said, "We've seen the tip slide. There's been a slight movement in there." This is incredibly dangerous, and it's right that the junior school is in the path. Can we please get rid of this tip? And nobody did anything about it. And you know, it's five times the maximum height, and it was built on a spring. There were obvious dangers to this tip. And with the National Coal Board, there's a a very serious tribunal um, that takes place afterwards. It's the longest tribunal in British history. There were about 130 witnesses called. And in the end, blame was squarely placed at the feet of the National Coal Board. We have Geoffrey Morgan from the National Coal Board and George Thomas, Minister of State for Wales, here to answer our question. Will you both accept responsibility? <laughs> National Coal Board cannot accept responsibility for the weather. Abnormal levels of rainfall have created extraordinary conditions. You've known about the spring under the tip for years. I wrote to you. By the National Coal Board. That's what I want to see written on my child's desk. They didn't actually uh, pin any criminal liability to them. So no one got fired. No one was named as like a culprit to a certain extent. No one had to actually pay for any of these crimes. It was, I think they used this incredible phrase that you just cannot believe was allowed. Well, first of all, the the coroner returned a blanket verdict of accidental death, and that was what established the the no criminal liability. Mm-hmm. But the tribunal outcome stated that the culpability was not of wickedness, but of ignorance and ineptitude. Okay? Wow. So in the end, just to just to uh, make matters even worse, they still wouldn't remove the remaining tip, which posed yeah, it could have collapsed a, a second time. So in order to get it removed, two years later, two years, um, the government dipped into the Aberfan Disaster Relief Fund, which had been set up to to help the families and support the town to the tune of £150,000 to help reach the amount of money that it would be needed to clear the tip completely. And the collapse tip, which was tip number seven, was actually one of a few that were still around the uh, hillsides of Abervan. So this money was used to clear not just the one that had fallen, but all of the rest that were sort of overshadowing the town. And that money was not repaid until Tony Blair's government, and they did not account for inflation. So they got 150 grand back, but it should have been about over a million. That's disgusting. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God, that makes me so angry. Oh. Yeah. And their children, you know, they may have lost two out of four. So they had 
everyone was emotionally scarred. They were scarred. Their own, the surviving children had survivor's guilt. The fathers who worked in the coal pits had extreme guilt that they had caused this thing in some way. And and there was just no, there was, it was back in a time when no one had the capacity really to work through this with them. And it, and they, you know, Abervan, the kids who were, who died there were called the lost generation. And the people who remained would never get out of the shadow of just this extreme death. You know, death had hit their home in such an, a, a savage way that, um, yeah, <laughs> I can't even finish the sentence. It's <laughs> when we were writing this, uh, it was back around June 2017 um, when the Grenfell Tower fire happened. And it's just shocking that this sort of thing, obviously there are some differences to what happened in Abervan, but it was sort of hitting the public again um, with such massive loss of life. It felt incredibly avoidable. Um, and it that event, I think, confirmed to us why it was so important to tell this story. Um, it had such parallels with it. And I think for the country to understand that something with that level of national mourning had happened before and actually in pretty recent history made it really important for us to get the story out. And the, the and the the interest in sort of other side of the episode is the way that that our queen yes. reacts to it. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned that British stiff upper mm. lip culture and it's a really interesting exploration about her public persona her private persona, how she is expected to react and behave. Absolutely. On arrival at RAF St. Athan, you will be received by Sir Kenneth Traherne, Lord Lieutenant for Glamorgan, and taken via car to the school disaster site in Abavan. Then on to the Bethania Chapel for the presentation of the heroes and survivors of the disaster. There will then be a visit to the cemetery where you will lay a wreath and finally, a visit to the home of a local miner, Thomas Edwards, who lost relatives in the disaster and scheduled conversations with several other grieving families. A whole trip should be approximately two and a half hours. Without wishing to prompt your majesty, you may wish to consider that this is Wales, not England. A display of emotion would not just be considered appropriate. It's expected. I mean, according to her deputy private secretary at the time, um, Martin Charteris, who said this well after he had left the royal household, one of her biggest regrets was delaying her visit. And and it's that it, it's such a fascinating question. Just when the entire I mean, the world was mourning, and what they needed was her physical presence to almost it almost validates that morning to a certain extent. If the yeah. queen's there commiserating for people, something really bad must have happened. Yeah. The director and executive producer Ben Caron joins us again. This time, we discussed the creative process in approaching such an important event. Abervan was was a significant event and, and one that we... Uh, we wanted to tell in season three and, and probably, uh, well, and one of the most preventable tragedies of the 20th century. I remember reading the script and uh, I, I think you'd have to talk to Peter, but I, I'm pretty sure he wrote that in about a week. 
and it just poured out of him. And I, and I know there are certain scripts in The Crown which he just locks himself in his little box and he just writes and it comes out and we, you know, we hardly changed it. So I think when you, when you read that, you just felt that we sort of had to remain truthful, authentic to those sort of events and those characters and, and to make sure that we showed the impact on the nation, the, the local community and the monarch, the queen. So first of all, we, with the producers, uh, we contacted the local community in Ambervan um, to talk to some of the survivors, explain that what we were going to be doing, that we wanted their blessing. Um, so we've, um, which they gave, and we've kept them uh, involved right from the beginning. And, and very recently they came to see a final screening. You then start the process of, well, first of all, I actually went to pay my respects. I went to Ambervan. We went to the site where the disaster happened, which is now Memorial. And then we went to the uh, cemetery and that that was really traumatic mm. because you see the graveyards of 116 children sort of parents all buried together and that and I you know I have a I have a young child I have a four-year-old and so we we just sat there for you know ages and 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 really just felt then and that well actually just grieved really grieved and and uh, for this just this this horrendous tragedy, and then uh, you know when you leave there, and you then you have to go into how am I going to make this film, and you have to sort of slightly put all those feelings to one side because you have to get into the almost the engineering of it. Mm -hmm. How am I? Where am I going to film it? How are we going to recreate this? Um, this this tip how are we going to recreate the slide and and so you sort of get into the the yeah the, the kind of mechanics of where we, so we found a town called Kamaman in in south wales which is about maybe you know not too far from Avavan itself there was a school that um they had just left that they'd built a new school so there was actually a, an empty school that looked similar to the, the the one um in real life we're in the shadow of a sort of hillside that oh. uh, that we would have to sort of you know add accentuate to but the the, the sort of the geography of that town worked was very, you know, as I'm sure a lot of these small Welsh mining towns were very yeah. similar um, kind of planning. So that became our kind of central point to where we would start. And then it was a question of sort of looking for a coal mine. You know, there's a few that are still exist, you know, that are almost museums now that you can go around. So there's one called the Big Tip, which we used um, for the sort of cafeteria, you know, where the miners come back. And then we had to find a top of a coal tip, which again was actually was a was a slurry tip, like an abandoned one. So we sort of got, you know, had to get all the crew up there and, and recreate that sort of railway line, the, the, the sort of, you know, where the where the coal mm -hmm. uh, slurry was dropped. And so some of that is real and some of that is, some of it we have to do is again in VFX. Yeah. And then casting was about sort of finding actors, Welsh actors from that area. And, and, and you know, and I'm, I'm actually, my dad's Welsh, so, and I spent a lot of my childhood going to South Wales to a place near Abergavenny. So it felt really personal and it felt that something had to get right. Yeah. And talking to all these Welsh actors that came in, it's such a still a big part of their life. And and what you felt was that that actually they also gave, you know, permission for us to tell the story because it was about making sure that 
we raise an awareness to this tragedy, not just to people under the age of 40 that definitely wouldn't know about it, and, and also to an international audience that, that wouldn't know about it either. And, and of course, you just want to make sure you, you get it right. We filmed for two weeks in South Wales, and I would, most days, I was, it was really emotional. Um, to the point where I couldn't even actually, some days I couldn't talk, I couldn't look at the actors and talk to them in the eyes. I was really sad. Wow. And so I'd have to turn my back and look away so that we could have a conversation about the scene. When I when we walk, I walked into the um, the chapel with all of the, you know, the bodies laid out, it was, I mean, we know, because we are creating real life. That was by far the hardest two weeks of my filming career. And it brings all sorts of emotions from your own life. And that's what we do as filmmakers. We sort of, you know, probably we're not able to show them. Yes, it's the story about Abraham, but it's also about the story of, Elizabeth and, and and also Wilson and these two, uh, what what ha- what the, what this effect happened to these two people in power and how they dealt with it and and I, and I think that's what's it creeps up on you the story you mm. don't really know where it's going uh, you, you sort of see it through the eyes of Tony you know who who was one of the first sort of royal family to jump on the train you know he said I will so I have to go and and he turned up there with a shovel and actually I think when he turned up there he realised that you know they were, he didn't want to get in the way and so we do that story you know we see him walk around Ampervan and we see the effect on Margaret and the cream mum and you know we go there with Philip there, there is a little bit of slightly conflating some you know certainly Philip we put him there at the funeral he actually wasn't there at the, the funeral it's really hard for us as filmmakers to show those elements of the story without our characters there so that's that's probably the only one thing that we um he did go there twice once on his own and and once with uh the queen but so that was one moment where we you know we took a bit of creative license to put him there to observe that moment so we sort of see it through all those eyes and then and then and then you know at the end we see her visiting and, and then we find out later in that amazing scene with Wilson about that incredible situation, you know, she finds herself in. I have known for some time there is something wrong with me. Not wrong. Deficient then. How else would you describe it when something is missing? These meetings are confidential, yes. I have never done a day's manual work in my life. Not one. I am an academic, a privileged Oxford Don. Not a worker. I don't like beer. I prefer brandy. I prefer wild salmon to tinned salmon. Chateaubriand to stained kidney pie. And I don't like pipe smoking. I far prefer cigars. But cigars are a symbol of capitalist privilege. So I smoke a pipe on the campaign trail and on television. Makes me more approachable, likable. We can't be everything to everyone and still be true to ourselves. We do what we have to do as leaders. That's our job. Our job is to calm more crises than we create. That's our job, and you do it very well indeed. 
one of the many things that I love about this series is, is in particular those audiences with Hart and Wilson and watching that relationship mm. and that kind of trust and friendship and develop. I, I love that relationship. It sort of starts off and you're not quite sure where it's going to go and maybe they're not going to get on because they feel like they really are from completely two different sides of the track. And then they... Yeah, then they connect through, I say towards the end of episode two, and then certainly by three, there's a real trust and a revelation there about each other in this private room, which is always to me has felt like it's the therapy room. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. in Sopranos, it's Tony Soprano <laughs> and the therapist. And yeah. I think, you know, how much do you reveal of your feelings and how much is, is she to be expected to show her feelings? Do you, do you want a, a, you know, do you want a queen that shows her emotions? Do you want her not to be in this, this really difficult position she finds herself? Question in her own place it's yeah. amazing and 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 if for like and i was always wondering that if for 20 years you've been in a position where you're not you know you're not expected or can't show emotion like how does that actually affect your wiring you know or it's weird because she can't allow herself to react how she would react but the way she would the natural way that she would react would be to not show emotion yeah. it's weird isn't it it's yeah. kind of and it sort of goes back to that British stiff upper lip sort of thing. And, you know, we're all weird, repressed human beings where we're not allowed to show emotion and we have to force it all down. But then at some point you just have sort of too many holes in your body and not enough fingers to put in that it just comes pouring out <laughs> in other ways. But, um, and I think that's brilliant, you know, that, that in this particular episode there's that conflict. And I think that, that, yeah, I love that conversation between her and Wilson. And I think that... <laughs> A revelation of both of them about the truth of who they are and what it is, but what they are, and that's for me one of the kind of the key things about the crown is what people are privately, and then what they are publicly is so different, and that that odd existence that we all have, or mm. we are public faces and our private faces, and again, it all feels really very relatable. I think you did an extraordinary job, Barbara Van. It really is. Thanks. A really beautiful episode. Thank you. I'm Edith Bowman and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Jason Watkins, Annie Salzberger and Ben Caron. This is produced by Netflix and Something Else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode four, titled Bubbikins. In this episode, Prince Philip's complicated relationship with his mother, Princess Alice, emerges when she's suddenly brought to live in Buckingham Palace, after being rescued from a convent in militarised Athens. As you know, Athens is in the throes of a military coup. Yes. The Foreign Office view is that we should send a plane to bring your mother to England to live here with us. Here? Yes, here. I'm sure you'll agree there's room at the inn. When? As soon as possible, tomorrow. We can't do that. Why not? In case you hadn't noticed, we have... We have cameras crawling all over the place. As it happens, I had noticed. Well, we can't afford to have my mother jeopardise this film. You know what she's like. A little eccentric, yes. No, more than that. She's not of our world, nor, frankly, suited to it. She's, she's been in institutions most of her adult life. She's not... She's not well. And with this film, appearances are vital. We need to be careful, very careful. No, the answer is no. Done. Come on. Ready? Hurry up. Ready? Of course she should come. She's 82. 
and if being mother to the Duke of Edinburgh and mother-in-law to the Queen isn't qualification enough, the fact that she's grandmother to our future King is. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts.